It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's broadcast is pre-recorded. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. The scriptures speak about the end times. It speaks about God sending a great delusion upon the people because they prefer darkness to light. And it will be that great delusion that finally leads many to receive the mark of the beast. I've often wondered what that delusion might look like. If possible, the very elect would be deceived. What greater delusion could come upon any man or any woman than to have the words actually changed, to actually have the words changed in their meanings? In other words, as we talk about this whole issue of salvation, we're going to really discover the power of word manipulation. You see, when when John Calvin came with his teaching, he did not tear down the Bible as the liberals did. He didn't say the, the Bible has no meaning. Instead, He let the Bible stand, but he emptied the words of their significance by the power of word manipulation. The atonement is emptied of its power to remove sin in the here and now. The gospel is, in a word, emptied of the power to save now from sin. Godliness is a mere form. It's emptied of the power of God unto salvation. So when we speak about certain words, the meaning from the scripture is changed. When we say saved, instead of taking the word saved, sozo, to mean that we have been powerfully transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Instead, it means that we continue to walk in sin. We continue to walk in in darkness, but we're saved. That wicked change has done so much in in discouraging current Christians from pursuing all that God would have them be given by the Holy Spirit, by the precious blood of Jesus. And so, sozo, instead of meaning as it does in so many places in the Scripture, being saved from something catastrophic, Today it means saved but not saved, not saved from sin. We're going to look at these issues today and in several of the coming days. It's important that we understand how we walk in these matters. It's important that we understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish in our hearts that we could cooperate with him. Now, anything that takes away from the merits of the blood of Jesus Christ is of darkness. Anything that removes from our hearts absolute assurance in the powerful blood of Jesus, is of darkness. Let me read this for you. 
It is a quote from a man by the name of S.H. Kellogg. Let me read what he writes. When the blood of the sin offering had been sprinkled in the holiest, the sins of Israel were then, by the other goat of the sin offering, borne away. Israel stood there still a sinful people, but their sin, now expiated by the blood, was before God as if it were not. So does the holy victim in the antitype, who first by his death expiated sin, then as the living one bear away all of the believer's sins from the presence of the Holy One into the land of forgetfulness. And so it is that as regards acceptance with God, the believing sinner, though still a sinner, stands as if he were sinless. All through the great sin offering, to see this, to believe it, to rest in it, is life eternal. It is joy and peace and rest. It is the gospel. No. It is the opposite of the gospel. It is a part of the great delusion that will finally allow men and women to receive the mark of the beast and still claim that they're saved by the precious blood of Jesus. If the blood of Jesus does not cleanse us right now from all sin, how can we ever stand before a holy God? If there's no power in the blood, then what are we doing saying we're Christians? That would be the cruelest kind of God who would say to us, I have saved you, but you must continue being ravaged by your sin. You must continue walking in the anguish of your heart because my blood does not have the power to save you until you die. What utter foolishness. And yet you recognize that everywhere in the modern Christian world, we are taught from the Bible answer man to all of the Reformed teachers. They all tell us the same thing. You cannot ever stop sinning. They say that grace is just a cover. What a lie. I want to read for you an email that started this whole process of sharing yesterday, today, and for the rest of the week. A dear brother wrote to me, I've been listening to your radio broadcast for a couple weeks now and have some concerns about some of your statements. It sounds a lot like you're claiming that we must not sin to be saved. Is this what you're stating? I agree that all who are saved should strive not to sin as we continue in our progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is not a part of the gospel. You will not find anywhere in the scriptures the teaching of progressive sanctification. You will find sanctification being made completely holy, walking without sin, and then you will find a sanctification that is a maturing, a growing up in Jesus. But you will not find a progressive sanctification where one continues to sin and slowly works through the issues until they're finally clean. The scripture only knows being purged. Jesus only taught amputation of sin. Look at John, the 15th chapter, the first verses very carefully. Does not teach progressive sanctification. I also am going to be looking at this whole issue of, is it true that we must not sin in order to be saved? He continued, However, according to 1 John, we all sin, and to claim otherwise is to call God a liar. 
It sounds on your broadcast like you are saying all those who are saved do not sin and will not sin. And we know this untrue by Scripture. No, he does not know that that's untrue by Scripture. He knows that by his seminary training. He knows that by his reading materials and hearing sermons that say that. He understands that from a few passages being plucked out of context and twisted to fit with the modern church's idolatry before God. He also says the Apostle Paul continued to struggle with sin after his salvation. Could you clarify, please? Yes, we're going to also deal with the Apostle Paul. He was not struggling with sin. And we'll look at that very carefully. This dear brother wrote with an honest heart. After yesterday's broadcast, he once more emailed me a very positive email saying, My mind is open. I just want to see in the scriptures because I've never, I've never been taught what you're saying. I've never, this is not the understanding I've had from my background. And I praise God that he is a, an honest hearted man who is searching for truth. Now, I want to share with you another email that came out of yesterday's broadcast, and then we'll turn to the teaching of the day. Dear Pastor Ray, I just wanted to thank you for such a blessing as today's broadcast. Your many references and clear explanation made it truly a joy to hear and very convicting. Thank you for the card you sent me. I'm still undergoing active testing, but I am persevering. Within two weeks of the day when Jesus' blood freed me of my desire to drink alcohol, and by the way, that happened in such a miraculous way, by the power of the Spirit, he came into this man who was an alcoholic and delivered him in one sweep of his hand. He said, within two weeks of the day when Jesus' blood freed me of the alcohol, of a power truly external to me began to test me in every area of my life. I was diagnosed as a pre-diabetic. I learned that I owe $30,000. My wife sprained her ankle. Both my stepson and my daughter developed minor sicknesses. My daughter's teacher told me that she was concerned that my only child may, be, may have a learning disability. Now I, now, I know that these are normal life events. However, every one of these events occurred back-to-back -back with a span of only six days. What are the chances? Even some of my family members, whom are doubtful about the extent of the devil's actions against us on earth, felt that all of this was simply too much to dismiss as coincidence. I have come to the same conclusion. And just a quick note. When you make the decision that you are going to leave your sin, and that you are going to be utterly given over to Jesus, and that you are going to have your eyes now on Jesus alone, and you are going to trust him to remove all sin from your life, the devil will come after you like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. You see, the devil is not concerned about people who call themselves Christians, who continue to walk like the devil, who continue to walk in the ways of the world, who continue to look and act like the culture of our day. He's not concerned about that. He's not concerned about that person going to church, giving tithes and offerings. But he becomes seriously concerned about a man or a woman who will say, Jesus, my life belongs to you. I renounce all sin. I utterly give myself to you now. And I choose by the power of your precious blood to no longer walk in any rebellion against you. As soon as you have utterly given yourself to Jesus Christ, every power of Satan will come to test and destroy you. He continues, Interestingly, the testing has resulted in increased prayer time, which has resulted in my becoming more aware of areas where sin or immaturity exists that I was previously 
unaware of. Certain areas of my heart where the motives were not 100% pure. So the testing is resulting in perseverance, which is indeed working toward ever-increasing purity and also maturity. What you are preaching is true and literally life and death. And I thank God for you and the few preachers out there who actually are preaching the gospel. Two truths that seem to be in effect that I have noticed since finding you on the radio. The first is that what you preach is straight gospel. So when I heard you preach about not living in sin, I knew it was not just true, but that I'd always known it deep down in my heart for at least 20 plus years. The Bible is very clear about it. However, when so many preachers and Bible experts with PhDs and MDivs, etc., preach the exact opposite, it gave me the excuse my intellect needed to believe that I could live with my sin. Their preachings also gave my heart the ability to ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And possibly the most powerful, it gave my flesh an escape route from crucifixion. Ignoring or ignorance truly is bliss, and living on the treadmill is quite pleasant, as it does not involve a total loss of control, no crucifixion of flesh, and I get to remain as my own master. The second thing I've noticed is that on hearing you speak about not living in sin and sensing from the Holy Spirit that you have actually crucified your own self and all the testing and suffering which this entails greatly strengthens me. This will sound weird, but simply knowing a human example exists which proves that freedom from sin in this lifetime is indeed accessible to anyone through Jesus' blood, and that the power of the Holy Spirit is actually still among us 2,000 years later, this knowledge is life-changing and convicting and humbling. I've read the Bible all my life, studied commentaries, learned some Greek, and read and heard many sermons but I have only experienced actual, undeniable, unexplainable power at the moment of my baptism and through acting upon your preaching about freedom from sin in this lifetime. I have indeed taken your advice about setting up my life so that Jesus is always in front and center. Some friendships have politely and respectfully been closed. I am talking to my spiritually-minded friends and my family about my experience and about the once-saved, always-saved fallacy. My first act was to explain my new realization with to my wife, who felt the same way inside and also believes in freedom from sin in this lifetime. And the second thing was I had to explain to my six-year-old daughter and my 13-year-old stepson about my great fallacy, and to correct my teaching with them. I definitely will visit the National Prayer Chapel and give full testimony about what Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and your ministry have done for me. I thank, I thank, um, I thank God for your radio ministry. Like I mentioned, simply knowing that someone else has gone through the same experience, trials, and tests, and not given in, but succeeded, and are now preaching and teaching about their victory, this is an inspiration beyond words. If you ever again need committed prayer for the National Prayer Chapel, or Pilgrim's Progress, or anything else of God, I would be honored to pray for it, most gratefully. Well, I do need prayer. I consider this issue of being washed in the blood of Jesus, being transformed into his likeness, and walking without sin to be the greatest single issue facing America today. It's not Ebola. It's not ISIS. It's not President Obama. It's not progressives. 
the greatest single issue facing America today is what will we do with the blood of Jesus Christ? And countless, countless numbers, many of you included, have had the Kool-Aid. You drank the poison. You have degraded the blood of Jesus Christ. You have crucified him afresh by your life. You have believed that you could walk like a sinner and, and involve yourselves in the things of the world, and that yet somehow you are saved. If we have time, which I doubt we will today, but I urge you to read in advance because I will be dealing with it. Read carefully the book of Jude. What an utter condemnation it is to pastors who teach and preach this absolute lie that the blood of Jesus Christ has no more power than the blood of bulls and goats. It simply is a forensic deal where you are declared righteous, but you are not made righteous. What a wicked, wicked thing has happened in our land. The truth of entire sanctification has been rejected by the modern church. And today we are reaping the harvest of wickedness in America. There has to be a new understanding. And I come to this broadcast on this little station day after day to try to lift up for you the truth of the gospel that you would be changed, that revival would come. But first, there must be a reformation of our ideas. We must see our sin for what it is. And so I'm going to go back and I'm going to talk about some of the historical background that opened this horrible lie, this grand delusion that is going to finally reach its apex when the Christian church says it doesn't matter what we do. We have to survive. We have to live. We're forgiven. The work was finished at the cross of Jesus. And now we are declared righteous even if we accept. And I have heard major pastors on radio and television, pastors of mega churches in America, I have heard them say, you can take the mark of the beast and still be saved because Our sins will be wiped away. It's simply one more sin of many. Despite the strong warning of Jesus that anyone who receives the mark is lost, but the lie is so powerful that many will take the mark of the beast because the work was finished at the cross and they're saved and they have to survive. Let's go back now. Let's dig into this issue. Let's look at what happened that this lie could be brought forward. Remember yesterday I shared with you some of the early history for the first almost 200 years of the Christian church. If you're talking about Clement of Rome or Ignatius or Hermas or Polycarp or Justin Martyr, if you're talking about the early church fathers and the first 200 years almost without Exception. Irenaeus was was one of those who turned away. But most, not Irenaeus, I'm sorry, he was 185. It was Tertullian who turned aside. Irenaeus was included in 185. He was included in those who believed that Christians were to live without sin. This was the absolute message of First John. I shared this with you yesterday. If you have questions, go to our website, nationalprayerchapel.com, and there you will find the podcast of yesterday's broadcast. If it's not up yet, it will soon be up. You need to listen to that carefully. But now let's look at what we call the Reformation. Martin Luther is one of those that started that Reformation. He was utterly important and vital. 
He had the boldness and the courage to take a stand against the sins of the church in the hope of change. But change did not come to the church sufficient to reform it. Neither did, ref- neither did change come to Luther sufficiently. Instead, he contained this apostate doctrine of the sinning Christian. He taught it and he believed it. Luther's greatness and value to the Reformation is not that he restored Christendom, the doctrine of salvation, but he, he made this vital break with Romanism, which was utterly dark and wicked. The Reformation, as Luther knew it, restored nothing of apostolic Christianity, the atonement, righteousness, or heart purity. He did not restore those, those items. Luther might have given the world a saving message, for he did say, the just shall live by faith. But in unbelief, Martin Luther denied the results of this truth, holding that the faith of a moment was security for a lifetime. The faith he claimed was utterly negated by a sinning religion. Now, this is what I meant at the beginning when I said words changed meanings. Faith, the just shall live by faith, coming out of the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is fidelity for faith. He emptied the word faith from the meaning of fidelity and instead gave it the meaning of legal or forensic righteousness, thus making the blood of Jesus of no more value than the blood of bulls or goats in the Old Testament. We'll deal with that in depth at a later time. Martin Luther was quoted as saying, Sin as you like, provided you believe. Or again, Luther used to say, at once righteous and a sinner. Or again, thou art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. Luther is also quoted as saying, the original sin in a man is like his beard. Shaved off today, so that a man is very smooth around his mouth, yet grows again by tomorrow morning. As long as a man lives, such growth of hair and beard does not stop. But when the shovel slaps the ground on his grave, it stops. In just this way, original sin remains in us and exercises itself as long as we live. But we must resist it and always be cutting off its hair. What a horrible description of life in Jesus Christ. And many of you, honest-hearted, like I was, struggle with your sin. You fail, and then you struggle again, and you fail, and you struggle again, and you repent, and you go back to it, and you repent, and you go back to it, because you believe that that's the Christian life. One foot with grace. One foot with forgiveness. One foot with grace. One foot with repentance. This is an utter lie. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you the joy that came into my heart when I discovered that righteousness was not gained by my work, but that righteousness was a gift from Jesus Christ. Real righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Righteousness placed in the soul of a man. Victory over every bondage that the devil could bring. Now these statements that I've just shared with you are utterly false to righteous character. For Luther then, his newly discovered truth that the just shall live by faith or by faith alone 
was little more than a war cry against the works of Catholicism. So what Luther called faith is not biblical faith, that is, a reasoned response with commitment to a revealed truth. The truth of by faith alone was mixed with air that faith and the sinning Christian are compatible. This position is totally inconsistent with that faith which necessarily separates a person from sin. The entrance into Christian experience and its maintenance are essential. It is essential, and it is by faith. The salvation that is by faith is both a crisis and a lifetime process. John Wesley used to refer to crisis salvation. Well, what is the crisis? The crisis is when we come to terms with the fact that as long as we walk in sin, regardless of of what we have been taught, as long as we walk in sin, we are lost. We have not been saved. See, Luther wants you to believe that you have been saved from the penalty of the law, but you still walk in sin. That would mean that God has absolutely no integrity. How could you love a God who would say to you, I will save you, but not now. You must struggle with your sin. You must fail. You must you must be devastated by it. You must be ravaged by the devil. And someday after you die, I'll deliver you. Are you kidding me? What a horrendous lie we have believed. But we have an investment as this one man who sent me the email. We have an investment because this means I can be saved but not be crucified with Christ. As opposed to the Apostle Paul saying, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ lives in me. We can be spared the agony of the crucifixion of our sin. We can still be in control of our lives. We can walk with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. It's an utter lie. And the crisis comes when we recognize that all sin has to go. And if you don't release all of that sin, if you continue to walk in it, you cannot enter into heaven. You're lost. That's the crisis the old timers used to speak of. When you come to terms with the reality that you must be crucified, you come to terms with the reality that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ, and you cannot be in sin and in Jesus at the same time. Impossible. So salvation comes with a crisis, and you recognize that you have no power to cast your sin off, that you have no power to defeat the lust of your heart, that you have no power to deliver yourself from bitter anger, lying and cheating and stealing. You have no power to deliver yourself from that alcohol. Some some that I've spoken with have struggled for years to overcome their alcohol and their wicked television habit and their, their vices. They've struggled for years, but they go to church. They weep before God. And then they continue to struggle against their sin, and they're never able to. Why? Because they refuse to be crucified and entirely cast their life into the hands of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus will break the power of alcohol or drugs, whether it be heroin or cocaine or any other drug. He will break the power of that drug over your life and deliver you. You cannot deliver yourself you must recognize that there is a God in heaven. And righteousness does not arise out of the strength of man's heart. Righteousness comes straight from the heart of Jesus. 
Martin Luther found salvation by faith alone. But it was a false salvation. It wasn't the real deal. Thus, the initial Reformation in 1517 was devoid of the great salvation truths of apostolic Christianity. The apostasy then rolls on, and neither the world nor the church yet knew that the Savior saves from sin while in the body. Luther continues the same old air of the centuries. He's only attempting to find faith rather than works to a life yet sinful. See, that's the key of what Luther discovered. You read the great debate between Erasmus and Luther. And you find this wonderful truth that has been so helpful to me. Martin Luther was very helpful to me in understanding that that I only have two choices. I either serve the God of heaven or I serve the devil. I don't have freedom of will in the full sense. I only have the freedom to decide whom I will serve. Luther did not understand that he was choosing simply to live by faith and not by works. I was raised in a church where there were two oars on a boat in their illustration One oar was labeled faith and the other was labeled works. An utter lie. A desperate lie. We cannot be saved by works. But neither can we be saved by a faith that does not work. We cannot be saved by works. But neither can we be saved by a faith that does not work. And the work is Jesus Christ crucifying us. The work is done by Jesus Christ in our lives as he circumcises our hearts. Colossians, the second chapter. We are circumcised by the hand of Jesus Christ. Our hearts are cut out. The sin is removed. What a glorious truth. The apostasy rolls on. Neither the world nor the church understood yet that the Savior saves from sin while in this body. And Luther continues with the same old air. He continues with the sinning Christian. This is morally and experientially impossible, though accepted by millions and perhaps by you. Luther brought separation from Catholicism And this brought a mighty truth that we could not be saved by works, that we must be saved by faith. He restored to the church that New Testament truth that salvation is by faith. But it was perhaps the greatest whitewash job of human history. And it set us up for the destruction we see on every hand today the wicked belief that you can be saved even as you walk in your sin, that you do not have to face the crisis of your crucifixion. What a moral depravity. What a lie from the pit of hell. Luther's work then cannot be properly referred to as the Reformation because he greatly erred in the critical doctrine of salvation from sin in this life. The movements that bear his name confirm for us the teaching that he gave and that we correctly understand. I've been to the Lutheran church. I've sat in many of their services. I've talked with Lutheran pastors. 
I've been heartbroken at their insistence that Christians still walk in wickedness and it's all right because they're saved. But it's not just the Lutherans, it's the whole reform movement. Now, I want to tell you, there were some in the reform movement who believed that a man had to leave all of his sin behind. Whitfield was one of those. I've read the conversations that he had with John Wesley. Some tried to stir up a fight between the two brothers. The fight failed because finally, Whitfield and John Wesley spoke with each other. They were contemporaries in the 1700s. It was very clear that Whitfield preached, you must be righteous before God in reality. You must leave your sins. John Wesley also believed, you must leave your sins. So Luther must take his proper place in history as the leader of the initial Reformation in the break with the Roman Catholicism system of utter darkness. His own teachings stand as a perpetual witness that he restored nothing of true apostolic salvation. Now, John Calvin's impact on the Reformation was chiefly in his ability to organize its doctrines and its people, and thus set its doctrinal course. Webster's Biographical Dictionary says of Calvin, his Geneva government served as a focal point for defense of Protestantism throughout Europe, and his zeal and his writings brought into one body of doctrine known as Calvinism, the scattered and unsystematic Reformed opinions of that period. I have read Calvin's Institutes. And frankly, if I'm completely transparent with you, John Calvin would not agree with many of the Reformed teachers of this day. He would not approve of the belief that you can separate justification and sanctification. That's very clear in his institutes. But John Calvin, as Luther, made no contribution to the restoration of New Testament salvation from sin. His doctrines are utterly false to the scriptures and accordingly have done untold damage to Christendom. His doctrines are more deadly to more people than any other system of religion. Calvin's system of absurdities cannot rationally accord with the reason or scripture. It has been, nevertheless, put together in a manner so deceptive and consistent within itself that each aspect of falsehood ingeniously requires the rest in order to stand as a system. It's known as the tulip. Remove one aspect and the whole system topples. It's like a house of cards. We note briefly Calvin's statement on atonement and its its necessary consequences. I read for you from the Institute of the Calvin Religion, of the Christian Religion, in Volume 2. If Christ had merely died a corporal bodily death, no end would have been accomplished by it. It was necessary or requisite also that he should feel the severity of the divine vengeance, punishment, retribution, in order to appease the wrath of God and satisfy his justice. Hence, it was necessary for him to contend with the powers of hell and the horror of eternal death. He suffered in his soul the dreadful torment of a person condemned and irretrievably lost. Now, this is a clear statement about the nature of atonement. 
For John Calvin, there is no atonement apart from divine vengeance, or, as it's referred to, as penal sanctification or satisfaction. So let me share with you the basic tenets that flow out of this belief of atonement. And just a brief note, and I'll get into this in more detail later. I believe Christian atonement, as understood from the Scripture, is that Jesus Christ was the sacrificial lamb. That the blood of Jesus Christ offered on Calvary was all-sufficient and all-powerful to set a person free of the devil and to establish him as a new creation in Jesus Christ. And we hear some people say, the work was finished at the cross. Therefore, all of my past, future, and past, present, and future sins have been forgiven. That is heresy. Simply not true. The scriptures don't teach that. It is true that atonement, the work of atonement, the lamb's sacrifice was sufficient, and he finished that part of the atonement work. But if you read carefully the book of Hebrews, it will teach you that now there is a work that Jesus does from the command center of heaven, that is the tabernacle of God, as he exercises his authority and power as the risen Lord to apply his precious blood to every man and every woman who will come to him in humility and repentance, and he will set them free. He will heal the wounds the devil has inflicted. He will restore them in real righteousness. But let me read for you the beliefs of Calvinism that atonement is by punishment. Therefore, a legal transaction with no change or imparted life. In other words, John Calvin believed that atonement was simply God's wrath in punishment upon Jesus for sin. And there was, and it was a legal, it was a forensic, it was an imputed righteousness that was not real for the person. It was simply a legal transaction that occurred. And this legal transaction then allowed that person to continue to walk in their sin all the while saying they were saved. So accordingly, all for whom Christ was punished must be saved. You understand? That's why they say you cannot lose your salvation, because the legal transaction was made in heaven. I've heard many preachers say, once a child of God, always a child of God. He'll never disown you. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot fall away. And they twist the scriptures and give it false meaning. But that must be their belief when they believe that the atonement was punishment from God and that when the legal price was paid, then every person who was elect must be saved. Now we come to the third. Reformed Reformed Calvinism limits atonement to the elect only. All others are predestined to eternal damnation, including unelect infants. Now, since atonement is by punishment of the substitute and therefore has legally satisfied all demands, salvation must be unconditional. This necessity gives us predestination. Consequently, there can be no moral necessity for righteousness, hence the sinning Christian. In other words, if the legal price was paid on Calvary, you are of the elect, you receive that legal payment that was made, there's no need for you to be righteous. And so, such a doctrine cannot require, nor can it logically admit the new birth, 
or the quickening of the human spirit in which spiritual life is imparted and a new creation is brought into existence in Christ by the power of his shed blood. Do you see this whole system denies the power of the blood of Jesus Christ? All requirements have been met by the divine vengeance upon the Son. And this is a legal transaction that cannot produce change, life from death, a new creature, or a new birth. So Calvin's theology has literally pillaged the church of its gospel, giving it a limited atonement and a sinning Christian in which both sin and holiness are said to abide in the same life. Now, we're almost out of time today. I'm going to continue this tomorrow. We're going to go deeper. I am doing this because it is necessary for you to come to a crisis in your life and recognize that legal salvation will not save you. You must have that crisis moment in your life when you understand that your sin separates you from God. And what Jesus Christ did on the cross was shed his precious blood, and that precious blood has the power to set you free. But you must be crucified with Christ. There are no shortcuts. There is no easy way. It'll cost you everything. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. We're coming toward the end of the month. Again, I'm going to ask that you stand with me. If this teaching is of value to you, then I ask you to stand and pray with me that we can move to an FM station. I ask that you pray for the people who are listening. This message must go out across America. It is of vital import. Let me give you our mailing address. It is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I need to hear from many of you. If the Holy Spirit is calling you and prompting you, please give as the Holy Spirit directs you. I don't believe the work of the gospel should be supported with selling I believe it should be supported with free will offerings and tithes as the Holy Spirit moves in your heart. God loves a cheerful giver. So write to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also write to me on the Internet. My personal email address is pardonforsin, pardonforsin at aol.com. Almighty God, bring the convicting power of your Holy Spirit to every heart today that we must come into this crisis of seeing that all sin must be put away. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Again, I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come and fellowship with us. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you. Great joy with great joy now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory.